The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I think there's too much blood in the water for the sharks to go away now. I always liken parliamentary recesses to Yorkshire puddings. They do soak up a lot of political gravy. I think on your Twitter handle it should be Alison Pearson permanently outraged. (laughs) I've booked you in for a bunion operation in October 2029. What do you think? Morning or afternoon? Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Now today, the day Planet Normal's released, marks the start of House of Commons recess. Prime Minister Boris Johnson will be hoping the absence of MPs from Westminster will lower the political temperature, perhaps slowing the steady flow of letters to the chairman of the 1922 committee. For if Sir Graham Brady receives written notification from 15% of Tory MPs, that's just 54, that they're not happy with the Prime Minister's leadership, that sparks a vote of no confidence. Johnson's getting it in the neck from all sides, of course, not only the Labour front bench. The ongoing outrage about lockdown parties in Downing Street is palpable. And now Johnson stands accused of whipping up mob violence, aimed against Labour leader Keir Starmer. Meanwhile, the huge spike in energy prices and the cost of living crisis more generally is really starting to hurt, with previously comfortable families now feeling the pinch. Even when the Commons in recess co-pilot, Graham Brady can still receive letters, and a no-confidence vote can be held virtually, before MPs physically return on Monday the 21st of February. So while the Prime Minister may breathe easy as MPs head for the hills, there may be no respite. So let's launch this latest trip to Planet Normal by asking, for the third episode in a row, can Boris cling on? So, co-pilot, I've got some very, very exciting news for you. (laughs) I build up these really dramatic questions and then you sort of tell me about your latest dog walk or something. (laughs) No. So given the NHS delivery plan, I've booked you in for a bunion operation in October 2029. What do you think? Morning or afternoon? Because in the morning I'm seeing the doctor. (laughs) You may point out that you haven't got a bunion, but you will have by October 2029. Anyway, more of the marvellous NHS non-delivery plan, go away and die until we see you in four years' time. Yes, our Prime Minister, well, I suppose that he played his get-out-of-jail-free card, didn't he, yesterday? Boris told MPs that he would be able to bring forward the ending of the last COVID domestic restrictions, including the legal requirement to self-isolate. So, yes, it's pretty good timing, really, Liam, because, as you said, it's just before the parliamentary recess. MPs could be going away in a really grumpy mood with him. It's like he's playing It's a Knockout. He's playing his joker, isn't he? But he's got to make it count. Yes. If he doesn't get a couple of days of good headlines off the back of this, as you say, get out of jail free card, ending those restrictions early, then he's going to be toast. It's a knockout where he's balancing on this sort of bouncy ball in the pond, isn't it? (laughs) So basically there is Boris out there in the middle of the pool with a foam oar trying to get himself to the other side. 
Look, I think there's too much blood in the water for the sharks to go away now. That's my feeling. He's probably bought himself a bit of time. It's actually interesting, Liam, I was just looking up that last week, enormous percentage, 5% of the adult population were isolating last week, well over 2 million people. That's completely unsustainable. So it will be welcome. He will be announcing the lifting of all the COVID measures on the 24th of February. I think Denmark's done it already, possibly Finland, but it really puts us towards the head of the pack. And as we've said before on Planet Normal, Boris can take a reasonable amount of credit for that strong position we're in, having finally pushed back against the mad sage doomsters. I think you shared, didn't you, on Twitter, a piece about how way out their dire predictions were this time. I mean, things are absolutely hundreds of times better than they said they were going to be at this point. Indeed, there's a lot of studies coming out now and a lot of very respectable journalists highlighting those studies about the efficacy or otherwise of lockdown. That's something that after the first couple of months of lockdown, Planet Normal kept saying repeatedly and you know, we weren't thanked for it. <laughs> we often were very, very heavily criticised for well, we it. we not thank co-pilot? <laughs> as, as Eddie Waring used to say, it's an up and under, you know. It's <laughs> as if we were doing something really strange by being journalists and questioning whether or not this was the right thing to do. And we were sustained, weren't we, throughout that, not just by people we found and talked to a lot within the scientific community who otherwise didn't have a voice. They had to remain anonymous given the kind of climate there was towards people who were seen as dissenters. But also we were sustained by endless emails from our incredible Planet Normal community, from our listeners Mm. telling us the human reality. And then we reported that human reality. I do think when this public inquiry comes, if Boris Johnson wasn't in such dire straits, And we'll come back to that. I do think speculation about when the public inquiry into COVID will happen and into lockdown and what it will say would be making the news every single day. But it's almost as if everybody's forgotten about that coming down the track. And you say there's lots of blood in the water and there is. And maybe we disagree slightly here or we agree, but we have different views on the timing. Look, He can be no confidence during recess, right? That can happen. On the other hand, 54 letters is one thing. A majority of 360 Tory MPs, this would be a vote of no confidence among Conservative MPs, not a vote of confidence across the whole of the House of Commons, and viewers and listeners should be clear about that. That means 181 people who are prepared to stand up and be counted and get rid of the Prime Minister. I think we're some way from that now, but I think the fact we are some way from it is due to timing. A lot of people from the Labour front bench to the Conservative Party at large, if they do want to get rid of Boris, they'll want to do it after those local elections in May, which are likely to be very challenging for the Conservatives, Mm. after the cost of living crisis has reached its peak, which will probably be in June, July. So I think he's going to hang around for a while And you know Boris Johnson, if he is in post and he is hanging around, he has always got the ability to bounce back. 
What do they call him? The greased piglet. The greased well, uh, it was. He's very limited, though, Liam, isn't he? He's very restricted in his movements because he did a kind of little mini reshuffle this week. He doesn't dare to put one of the bigger people in the cabinet onto the back benches. He can't afford to cause any more ill feeling. He's appointed, I think, the rather impressive Steve Barkley. I think is going to be almost chief of staff. Gitto Harry, who was his press person when he was the mayor of London, who is now coming in to be communications chief. And it did make me laugh because Gito, as you know, Liam, is um, a fellow Welsh person. And Gito immediately gave an interview to a Welsh radio station in which he said that Boris was not a total clown. I thought, I mean, I can say that about you because Planet Normal listeners will understand. But for the communications chief to say that the man he's working for is not a total clown. Who happens to be running the fifth biggest economy in the world. And apparently Boris sang, I will survive to him. By Gloria Gaynor. By Gloria Gaynor. It was quite classy by Gitto to do it in Welsh. So the whole of... <laughs> The British media establishment had to scramble for Google Translate. <laughs> the trouble is that I will survive, of course, Liam, it's go on now, walk out the door, just turn around now because you're not welcome anymore. So I think we're in this really quite strange phase because, as you know, our media class can just be absolutely fretting or fulminating over absolute trivialities while these absolutely appalling things are going on. And as you alluded to earlier, we're seeing this, did Boris incite violence against Sakir Starmer by saying he hadn't done anything about Jimmy Savile. That was during Prime Minister's Question Times last week. And Starmer was set upon disgracefully by this mob. And there's been a real attempt by the media class to try and put it on a par with Trump inciting people to kind of riot on the Capitol. I mean, this is absolute nonsense. Have you seen any of these guys? They're called the Alpha Men Assembly. I mean, they're these absolute sort of cat weasel beardy weedies, militant anti-vax. They previously waylaid Michael Gove, Nicholas Watt, the BBC reporter. So I really think that talking that up as if Boris is personally responsible for violent attacks on the leader of the opposition. I do think that was ever so slightly staged. Look, there's always people hanging outside Parliament. I walk past Parliament three or four times a week. There are always people with banners, with placards, and fair play to them, whatever their views. It's a free country. It's a democracy. The day we haven't got slightly unhinged people standing outside Parliament is the day that our democracy, with all respect, is much diminished whether you agree with them or not. And any politician who wants to get a photo op with a bit of roughy tufty just has to walk out the door. I mean, for the leader of the opposition, it just struck me as faintly ridiculous, with all respect, not that I want the safety of any politicians to be threatened, of course. And the, when he was director for public prosecutions... You know, Keir Starmer, when he looks back on that period, takes all kind of plaudits for cases he oversaw but wasn't directly involved in. And he said in the past that the DPP should have probably done more to track down paedophiles in public life. So I do think there's so much that's wrong with Boris. There's so much that he does that can be questioned morally and otherwise. But I do think this row is slightly contrived, sort of faux outrage, something else to pile upon him at a time, as you say, when the general public is absolutely fixated on this cost of living crisis, on these sky high energy bills. We focus more on 
Keir Starmer walking through a mob of a few people who are shouting things at him about lots of subjects, from vaccinations to moon landings to paedophiles. And yet, for many people, the cost of living is soaring. The off-gem energy price cap has just gone up by 54%, with the boss of Centrica saying there's a lot more to come. Labour are proposing a windfall tax on some of our huge oil and gas companies. You've got a very complex weird council tax rebate, not rebate, loan scheme from the Treasury. It's more like Gordon Brown than Rishi Sunak. Why aren't we debating that ad infinitum rather than endless, for my money in this case, contrived outrage about the Prime Minister? I've actually been reading up on energy policy, thinking the co-pilot will be able to explain it to me. I found it extremely hard to comprehend what a Conservative Chancellor is doing. What is he doing? He's going to give people 200 quid. Is that right? Give people 200 pounds off their energy bills and then people will pay this loan back at a rate of 40 pounds a year over five years from 2000. It's even more complicated than that. I think he should just scrap the VAT on fuel bills. But apparently that's too simple. I don't buy the argument that that's regressive because it benefits the rich more than poor. It doesn't. It benefits the poor a lot more than the rich, because if you're not wealthy, you spend a much higher share of your income on energy. So the VAT cut is proportionately more. But what Sunak's come up with, it is sort of Gordon Brown levels of complexity and clever cleverness. There's going to be an extension in the winter fuel allowance, the warm homes benefit for the most vulnerable families. I completely buy that. That's a good idea. There's going to be a proper rebate not to be paid back on council tax, but only for people in bands A to D, lower value homes, very few of those in London and the southeast. So that's a kind of red wall policy. But then the weird policy is he's going to give extra money to energy companies that haven't hedged properly. So now are in financial dire straits, flatter their balance sheet. And then we then pay back those energy companies who give us a discount on our fuel bills from October, not from April, from October. So there's a six month delay over five years. We pay that back. So it seems to me incredibly complicated. It's too late He should have come up with this scheme months ago so the energy companies could implement it. People like me and you have been saying on Planet Normal, been writing in my columns for months that this huge energy spike is coming in April. We get a scheme just a few weeks before that simply can't be implemented in time. And never forget, Alison, it's not just vulnerable families on benefits. It's many previously comfortable lower and middle income families, two people at work who are going to really struggle to make ends meet. And here's the clincher for me. There is no energy price cap at all for businesses. They are going to be exposed to the full impact of sky high wholesale energy prices here in the UK, which are much, much higher than in many other countries, particularly the US, because of our disgraceful lack of gas storage, our disgraceful lack of a coherent energy policy, precisely for moments like this, when global energy prices spike. Well, you may have noticed, Copilot, I had a bit of a rant against Mrs. Carrie Johnson in the column today. Perhaps we should draw a veil over that. But just to say something that really gets my goat, you know how chippy I am, Welsh working class. But this transition to net zero by 2050 and everyone gets an electric car, heat pump that they can't afford. And it's being imposed at this speed on ordinary families by these 
posho greens. And I think we've said this, Halligan, you just know they'll have a spare generator in the stable block for when the wind doesn't blow, don't you? You just know that Zach Goldsmith isn't going to be sitting in the dark in Richmond with one scented candle looking around for the tea lights or not being able to heat his children's (laughs) bedrooms. Something I did think was genuinely interesting, apart from the delightful fact that the BP chief executive appears to be called Bernard Looney. Tell me that's true. It is true. (laughs) (laughs) It reminds me of the old Panatella advert. I know we sometimes do 70s retro television trivia. There was a Panatella advert. They used to have these crazy devices that people would use and then they would fail. So alternatively, they'd just sort of smoke a Panatella cigar. They came up with these skis and they were like triple skis. You had a ski in the middle and then two stabiliser skis and it was... You too can be the envy of the slobs with the new Jean-Claude Luny skis. Look it up. It's true. (laughs) Jean-Claude Luny. I think we're being led basically by Jean-Claude Looney and his assorted brothers. But uh, look, I think interestingly, we see Boris probably as being under, let's say, heavy pushback in the bedroom about this net zero uh, transition. But this week, there was stuff about ministers approving new licences to drill for oil and gas in the North Sea, despite the net zero target. Do you think we're seeing a bit of a rupture now between a more confident Sunak eyeing the leadership prize? Business minister Kwasi Kwarteng gave a very passionate speech pro our own oil and gas. I mean, I'm not like you. I don't understand about economics, but I think under our own land and our seas, we've got enough energy for many decades at a reasonable price for normal families. Yet here we are importing gas, which surely must be one of the most unenvironmentally friendly thing we can do. Should the ban on fracking remain in place? And do you think there's now clear blue North Sea water between number 10 and number 11? I think it is significant. For quite a long time, ministers have been very, very reluctant to allow more new exploration for oil and gas offshore in the North Sea. That's now changing as the impact of net zero really comes home to roost, as the rubber hits the road. And so you are now getting pushback from the Chancellor and there are going to be new licences issued. But it's not just energy that is front and centre. So many economic policy issues now coming to the fore while so much of the media just wangs on about birthday cakes and identity politics. It's also the NHS, isn't it, with these huge, huge waiting lists. We had great hopes for Health Secretary Sajid Javid, but it could be that the Tories go into not just this local election in May, but the next general election where we will have paid the extra tax in terms of national insurance contributions But because the NHS is such a huge, lumbering, monolithic ship, it won't have turned round and waiting lists will still be high, maybe even rising, despite the extra tax. You know, I'm absolutely boiling about this, Liam. I can't tell you I've been doing a lot of work. (laughs) Human, human. I think on your Twitter handle, it should be Alison Pearson permanently outraged permanently outraged (laughs) well I try not to be but what can you say so this actually rather delayed NHS delivery plan not like we've got an urgent health crisis or anything so Javid finally stood up and outlined what we can expect I mean really meagre gruel you know NHS waiting this Halligan already at a record six million people he's saying he admits it will grow for two more years 
despite the fact we're bunging them £12 billion and waiting lists will not start to fall until March 2024, which of course we know will be sometime around a thing called the general election. And one thing, again, that really annoyed me, he's promising to boost NHS activity by 30% for three years, although there's been lots of pushback. One of the reasons the plan was delayed is because, of course, the NHS was unhappy about having to meet these onerous targets. There was more wrangling between the Treasury and Number 10 about the funding. But this is a national calamity. Sajid Javid said the latest figures suggest that 10 million people, quote, stayed away from the NHS during the height of the pandemic. Now, co-pilot, do we think 10 million people stayed away from the NHS when they were ill? Or did they fail to come forward, which is the other bloody mealy mouth thing they say. No, they were terrified into not going into to hospital, stay at home, support the NHS, don't come and bother us with your trivial cancers, all of these vast areas. And as you wrote, the GP gateway to the NHS wasn't open to them so often because they couldn't get an appointment. No, so it's blame the patients. and yeah, outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. And we had Boris this week. Every other day now, he's in a cancer unit. My guess, Halligan, is they know it's dreadful. It's tens of thousands of people, many of them younger, are going to die. And I did call up our friend, the brilliant oncologist, world leader in the field, Professor Carol Sakura, and I read him out what Sajid Javid had said, and he said it was basically total BS. This is a very mild-mannered professor. He says his colleagues in Europe laugh when he tells them that a potential cancer patient here might be seen in two weeks. And Carol Sakura said, British people have such low expectations of the NHS. In France, Germany and Italy, you would be seen the next day. Our system isn't much cheaper, but it has far poorer results. And Carol Sikora says, basically, we have to get going with all these absolutely ramping up every diagnostic centre, every MRI scanner, every CT scanner. Get them working day and night, round the clock, weekends too. He says there's such a tiny window in which we have to do something within a month if we are going to make a dent on survival. And I wasn't picking up from Sajid Javid any sense of that urgency. This is a matter of life and death. People are going to die because the NHS is not getting its act together. And I suppose what I think, Liam, wherever we look, we've talked about this, didn't we, during the pandemic, no one, not Labour, not Conservatives, no one was challenging the awful consequences of the restrictions. And with the NHS, we have, again, this complacent unanimity about our wonderful NHS. There's nothing bloody wonderful about it. It is in a worse state than any health service in the developed world. And our people have been so brainwashed into thinking it's okay that our health minister can stand up in parliament and say, we've got a six million person hospital waiting list and it's going to go on growing for two more years. I mean, literally beam me up, Scotty. Don't you think it's astounding? We deserve better. Here at Planet Normal, we're grateful to NHF staff who work so hard, and there are many of them. And, of course, we completely accept and would protect 
the concept of free at the point of use universal health care, would we not? But what is desperately needed, desperately, and the media is partly to blame here for not having the guts to do this, is a proper grown-up debate about how we structure our healthcare system. Many other countries, France, Germany, Spain, the Netherlands, have a free at the point of use universal healthcare system that doesn't have one massive monolithic state provider that is deeply, deeply inefficient for all the efforts of the people that work in it. It isn't a choice between a monolithic NHS or America. There are many, many other middle ways to secure free at the point of use healthcare. We desperately need to discuss that here in Britain. The Telegraph brings you a new podcast series, Eyewitnessed History. Harry, will you take Meghan to be your wife? The moments we all remember. I will told by Telegraph journalists who were there. You remember how magical and remarkable it all was, and it makes you feel sad that they're no longer a part of the royal family. Follow Eyewitnessed History in the same place you're listening to this. Well, co-pilot, our guest this week in The Rocket is someone who's a bit of a personal hero of mine, a man who's been a rare voice of sanity and compassion in Parliament during lockdown. Sir Charles Walker has been the MP for Broxbourne since 2005, a mainstay of Conservative backbenchers. In 2010, he was elected vice chairman of the influential 1922 committee. Charles Walker was a supporter of Brexit and is a leading campaigner on mental health issues. In 2012, he made headlines when he told the House of Commons that he had suffered from obsessive compulsive disorder for 30 years but had told no one. Charles Walker describes himself wonderfully as a practicing fruitcake. Now, co-pilot, I suspect it was Charles's own experience with mental health problems which made him such an impassioned and fiery campaigner against the COVID restrictions. So Charles Walker sadly announced last week that he would be stepping down from Parliament at the next election, which has come as a blow to those of us who see him as a folk hero for lockdown sceptics. So, co-pilot, I began by asking Sir Charles Walker what motivated that decision to resign. Well, because I've done it for 17 years and, you know, Alison, to be a member of Parliament, you've got to want to leap out of bed every morning with 110% levels of energy. And I just don't have that anymore. And you know what? Broxman is a fairly safe seat. I suspect it will return a Conservative MP at the next general election, whoever he or she may be. But ultimately, I didn't think it would be fair to my constituents or my association to get re-elected knowing that my heart wasn't in it anymore. So I owe it to them to step aside and allow some shiny new penny the chance to represent the seat in Parliament. You talked about not wanting to be caught up in the current soap opera. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, I just think what's going on at the moment is is very sad. I feel very sorry for Boris Johnson. He's always been very good and very, very kind to me. But there is obviously a lot of grief and pain and anxiety out in the country. And Alison, you know, I warned against that throughout the lockdowns, that Mm. there was going to be a huge consequence to people's mental health and well-being as a result of the huge demands placed on them. And I feel a lot of that grief and anger is now focused on what did or did not happen at number 10 Downing Street. 
You said it's in the national interest that he goes. Is that right? Is that your gut feeling now? So what I said is that it's, it should be the prime minister's decision. But if he said, look, there's a lot of grief and pain out there, but we did get the big decisions right. But I understand that grief and pain runs deep and the country needs to heal. And if it can do that better without me being in place than out of love of my country and its people, I will step aside from number 10, then I think he would be heroic for doing that and courageous. So I think it has to be his decision. And I think if he made that decision, he would be hailed as a truly great man and prove a lot of his doubters wrong, to be honest. You want him to go for that reason? I want him to make that decision because I want him to have agency in this whole process because I respect him. And he deserves the chance to have agency in this process. And that would be the advice I would give him if, if he stopped me in the corridors. I would say exactly what I've said to you and others. I would say, Prime Minister, great people make great decisions and brave decisions. And, and if you were to decide to step aside out of the interests of the country and, and its citizens, then that would be a noble and brave decision. You understand, Charles, I know the anger and the anguish that the revelation of these parties in Downing Street has caused. I mean, I've read people saying, oh, you know, let's get a sense of proportion. And it's a bit frivolous to get rid of a prime minister because of a few glasses of Prosecco. But as you were constantly drawing attention to in the Commons, this was a time of the most draconian restrictions. I mean, not even in wartime had we had these restrictions on people not being able to sit next to people on a park bench or visit a dying parent. And Alison, this was never going to be a free good, was it? It was never going to be a free good economically. So we have a debt burden that's increased, what, by about 450 billion, give or take. It's having now huge consequences on the economy, inflation forecast to peak at over 7%. And of course, it was never going to be a free good in regard to the nation's social well-being. I think all those things now, people are beginning to register these things and they are angry and, and upset. And as, as I said, I think a lot of that anger and upset is focused on number 10 for the reasons you've just identified. You've mentioned that the public are becoming more demanding, quite angry. Some of them cross the line that it's a potentially very toxic situation for members of parliament. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Well, I do think that just because you're angry, you can't behave how you want to behave and then excuse it by saying, well, I'm very angry. And I do feel that debate and dialogue in this country continues to take a step backwards after a tragedy or a near tragedy. Everyone says, well, we've got to do things differently. And I'm afraid I say to myself very quietly, well, nothing will get changed. And year on year, it seems to get worse. I have great sympathy for the public, but it is no good them just saying, well, if politicians were different, we'd behave differently, because I don't believe that's true. We all have a duty uh, to be kinder and more generous to each other. And, and again, Alison, that's one of the reasons why I'm leaving, because I too am becoming an angry, grumpy person. It's surely not, Charles Walker. Your sunny, golden temperament. No, it's not. My fuse <laughs> is getting shorter and shorter. And you can't have a short fuse in politics. And that's another reason why I've got to go, because my patience is wearing thinner and thinner. And I think that's not a good place for an MP to be occupying. I'm getting a sense from you that you think it's going to be death by a thousand cuts and you'd rather see 
a more noble exit. Would that be correct? Look, it is possible, of course, that the Prime Minister uh, will survive and carry the day. I don't think that's the outcome that's going to happen, but it is an outcome and it can't be entirely discounted. But having been very close to the defenestration of Theresa May and been one of her last supporters standing, I know removing a prime minister who doesn't want to go is a long, painful and traumatic process for the, for the party. I just want to confirm, Charles, have you put a letter of no confidence in the Prime Minister in to Sir Graham Brady? That's a very nice try, Alison, but as you know, <laughs> I was vice chair for 11 years. I do, There I is do. great confidence between Sir Graham and colleagues, and I don't want, if I answered that question, it would put pressure one way or another on colleagues to answer questions when they're asked by their local media or very experienced journalists like yourself, so I will decline to answer that. Do you think it's likely that, I mean, there's a parliamentary recess coming up at the end of this week. Are you expecting more letters to go in or or do you think it it will trundle on? I always liken parliamentary recesses to large Yorkshire puddings. They do soak up a lot of political gravy. (laughs) So if you're under pressure, yeah, Uh a sort of 10-day break from Parliament Mm. allows the febrile nature of what's going on to sort of wane somewhat. So so I think the Prime Minister's team will be looking longingly towards Parliament rising on Thursday for for 10 days. Charles, Planet Normal listeners will know you were a vocal, prominent critic of the COVID-19 restrictions, one of the very few in the House of Commons to speak out. In October 2020, you said something quite extraordinary, that the government seemed to think it could abolish death. What did you mean by that? Well, you can't. I mean, people die. And when you're elderly in your 80s and 90s, the chances of you dying is is greatly increased. And what really upset me was the way that these deaths were just turned into statistics. So lives well lived, I think I said, were just boiled down to this person died of COVID, if that makes sense. And I've got two young activists in my association whose grandparents died, two separate people, two separate grandparents died with COVID. And they wanted to make it perfectly clear to me, Alison, that their granddad and grandma died with COVID. Does that make sense? They didn't die from COVID Mm. and they got very aggrieved that these wonderful lives well lived had just been reduced to that of a statistic. You accuse SAGE, that's the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, of choosing to ramp up the fear factor regarding the virus. Charles, do you think it's now starting to be apparent that it was a mistake by the government to allow the population to be so frightened in that way? I think it was a terrible mistake. And I think the damage and the trauma done is is, is extreme. And I feel my heart rate quickening answering your question because undoubtedly, in my view, some absolutely wicked things were done and those that promoted them um, should hang their heads in shame. Of course, they won't, but they very much should. Do you understand, do you sympathise, as I do, with the Prime Minister who is having these things whispered in his ear, 500,000 deaths by, you know, the summer, if you don't do as we tell you? Do you understand what was going on? Do you think it was hard to stand up against them? I wish we would have done things differently. We didn't do things differently. We did what the entirety of Western Europe did and most of the world, bar one country, which I believe was Sweden. And 
on the basis that we did what every other country did, we actually did it better in most cases. So he deserves to be congratulated for that. But when you say we're going to be led by the science, well, you need to listen to a diversity of scientists. And I'm afraid those who had a different view were disgracefully marginalized and cast out as heretics. Um, And actually, the thing that scientists don't have to do is run complex first world economies. And perhaps that, that wasn't given enough waiting. Look, I don't know. It was fiendishly difficult. Who knows? I might have made the same decisions if I'd been there. It was very easy for me to sit on the outside saying what should or should not happen. But I do think I was consistent. I really do in in my concerns. You certainly were. In the Commons, you said one of your many very powerful statements that stays with me, as we drift further into an authoritarian coercive state, the only legal mechanism left open to me is to vote against this legislation. The people of this country will never, ever forgive the political class for criminalising parents seeing their children. How do you think people in the future will view this period? That's such a good question. I mean, clearly, I've identified the grief and pain, anxiety and trauma. I don't think that's going anywhere soon. How awful it must be to be a mother and wake up in the middle of the night in a sweat because you couldn't hold the hand of your daughter who was perhaps dying in a hospital. And that's just a a truly terrible, terrible thing. I just don't think anybody fully understands the grief that this has caused and the pain that it has caused. I gave a speech once in Parliament in December of 2020 when I said I don't want to hear from people who are having good lockdown. I want to hear from people who are having a bad lockdown. And I received thousands of thousands of emails, what I would call witness statements, and it was profoundly moving and has certainly shaped part of my decision to leave Parliament. Has it? Because what? Because you felt this was... Because I said my fuse is shortened and I can't be angry and I am angry And as I say, speaking to you, I can feel my heart rate quickening. I'm angry on their behalf. And that's why I gave my milk speech. Yes, I was going to, we were going to come to that. So on the 25th of March last year, following a debate on the six months extension of emergency powers, you made your legendary pint of milk speech. Can you remind Planet Normal listeners of this seminal moment in, um, or maybe bovine moment, who knows, in parliamentary history? I talked to my wife about how do I catch people's attention? And so I chose milk because it's fairly anodyne. But people do say, what did you do today? Oh, I talked about the price of milk and life in general. You know, there's that saying. Yes. Those who took the trouble to listen to the speech will see that it was largely wrapped around the trauma that so many people who wrote to me were experiencing be it self-harm, anorexia, loss of agency in their life. Yeah, it was a, uh, it was, I needed to give voice to the 3,000 plus people that that wrote to me. And I was very interested that uh, John Crace, who, as you know, is a sketch writer for The Guardian, gave it such a generous write-up. He's not, it's not normally his style to give MPs a generous write-up. But then John very bravely admitted that he had suffered greatly in lockdown. And so it was for people like that. I think, Charles, that you, if I may, your honesty and compassion does invite a response in other people. And Liam and I also on Planet Normal had thousands of the kind of emails you describe. And and I'm going to be very honest with you now and say I think it 
made me a little bit mad, to be honest. I feel I became somewhat unhinged. I certainly became very depressed for a period, which we did talk about on the podcast, because I felt that these people were sharing their immense anguish and trauma with you. And if you're any kind of a human being, of course, that's going to affect your own heart, isn't it? Does, does that chime with you? I mean, Yeah, it does. I mean, they just needed a voice. And it's really important that on your podcast, I recognise the trauma that those doctors and nurses would have gone through on those wards, you know, and I have nothing but love and admiration for them. There is, though, a deep mental health scarring to some people. And, and I know that was happening, not just Alison, because you and I received emails, but you would have been emailed by lots of psychologists who were concerned about what was going on by lots of psychiatrists but I've got mental health nurses social workers in the mental health field contacting me so I too was contacted by NHS professionals it was profoundly profoundly life-changing and desperately upsetting in the way that you describe your own experience but I'm glad I did it I noticed you had a very voluble period when you were making these quite extraordinary speeches in the Commons, and then you went quiet for a while, and I missed you, I missed your contribution, and I wondered if, like me, you'd felt it was almost too much to bear. Do you know what, Alison? I've spent my entire parliamentary career working in the chamber, searching for the perfect speech, yeah? And perfect speech isn't what other people think of it. It's like a painting, isn't it? You can be an amateur artist and paint your perfect painting. And once I'd given the pint of milk speech, I gave a couple more afterwards. But really, I, that was it. You know, that was where I'd arrived at. And I didn't really have much more to add to that, if that makes sense. I had a go at Sage um, and my disappointment at the way uh, they were paraded on media and news programmes as being of sage, but with the rider here in a personal capacity, which is total rubbish. I mean, I'm not on your podcast in a personal capacity. I'm on it because I'm a member of parliament for crying out loud. And I just, I really, really resented the way these people were allowed to make big, big, big decisions. And all I said was, I don't expect generals to give a running commentary on a war or people in the battlefield. And I just felt that if you advise number 10, then you advise number 10. And that should prevent you from having advised the BBC, Channel 4, Sky News and everyone else you want to mention. As a politician of long standing, do you think that there is a tendency, if you're being given a worst case scenario, that you're going to go with the sternest advice, regardless of what your human instincts might be, because you're not going to be blamed? You know, at least if you did the sternest thing, people won't blame you. Well, you know, Alison, that's really interesting. It's called the precautionary principle. And, you know, this is where I do think the public has to accept some responsibility, because you remember during the fiercest of lockdowns, 85% of the country were, were supporting them. And we all have to bear some responsibility. A lot of this was done in our name. And it got the support of the public, if you believe the polling. And, you know, I think the polling might have over-exaggerated the level of support, but I think broadly the support was there. So the government probably thought, well, look, what we're doing is hugely popular, so let's keep doing it. So, you know, the precautionary principle carried the day. 
Coming back to the present state of the Conservative government, I asked Liam over the weekend, Liam is a very, very good economist, how the policies of the Johnson government differed from those of the Gordon Brown government. Did you ever imagine that the party you stood for would end up being the party of high taxation, which loans people their own money to pay their gas bill and plans to reclaim that loan in the near future? I mean, this may sort of sound slightly controversial, but I have some sympathy for Rishi because we can't position lockdowns as a free good. The public have to be aware that if you lock down an economy, there will be financial consequences. And yeah, if you have to put up taxes to deal with the backlog of the NHS, you have to put up taxes to deal with the backlog in the NHS. And maybe if we're confronted with another wave of COVID-19 or something similar, what Rishi's had to do will give pause for thought for people before they reach for the lockdown button, if that makes sense. We also, I think, I think those of us who voted very enthusiastically for Boris Johnson in 2019 were perhaps unaware that this goal of, of net zero, that net zero was going to be the amount of money you'd end up with in your bank account for all the electric cars and heat pumps and so on. Do you think, Charles, that this is a bit headlong, given that we're just emerging from this vast crisis, to then expect people to pick up the tab for something which looks to some of us to be being pursued as a kind of ideological good rather than a practical good for the single mum who can't afford to heat her children's bedrooms? We have to have a sensible transition, and it doesn't feel that the current transition is particularly sensible. Uh, The government has a duty to provide affordable energy to its citizens or ensure that affordable energy can be provided. Clearly, there uh, there are issues, obviously, with Russia and Ukraine and and gas pipelines. But let's be honest, this country is still fairly rich in natural resource and sort of difficult times call for difficult decisions to be made. And if that requires the government to say, OK, look, our ambition is to move towards net zero. But right now, we've got a greater ambition to ensure that people's homes are warm then I think they would be applauded for that. I'm an environmentalist. I mean, I love my chalk streams, but you're not going to carry people with you if the cost becomes almost unimaginable to them. Can I ask you, one of your senior colleagues rather mischievously said, ask Charles if he thinks the quality of parliamentarians has declined. Ah, ah, no, I wonder who said that. (laughs) I think, to be honest, it's becoming a much less attractive vocation. And I think that... A lot of people who perhaps 30 or 40 years ago would be willing to step out of their successful careers, and those could be successful teaching careers, healthcare careers, business careers, legal careers, to do one or two terms in Parliament, knowing that they would leave with their reputation enhanced for having done their bit. Well, I'm now far more inclined not to make that decision. And, you know, I I do believe eventually the public will end up with the members of Parliament that they deserve. What you don't want to end up with, and I would urge you or your listeners to avoid this, is, is people with rhino thick skin who get into Parliament to climb up the greasy pole as quickly as possible, really are not that interested in what people think of them or say about them. I mean, I pretend that I am not interested in what people think about me, but I do have a paper thin skin, which again, probably isn't great for politics, but there has to be a happy medium somewhere. Charles, on Planet Normal, we like to give our guests a special magic laser wand to make a wish. If you, looking to leaving Parliament in a couple of years, could make a wish for the future of this country and of this party, what would it be? Gosh, I would love to see the economy growing 
um, above the trend rate of the past 10 years. Obviously, we've had a bounce back from COVID because I think a lot of the problems we're encountering, a lot of the upset people and the upset that people are experiencing and the anger is heightened by the fact that living standards haven't really grown for the past 14 years. So I would love to see people feel a bit happier and a bit wealthier and a bit bit more comfortable. And I feel people just need some calm water. There just hasn't been any calm water for so many years just for people to gather themselves, take a breath and just feel less under pressure. So that's what I would like. And obviously, the Conservative Party is a party that has given me so much. I do love it. But we are the Conservative Party and we do need to behave like Conservatives. Yes. Charles, I just want to finish by saying that you standing up in Parliament, passionately opposing the dehumanising restrictions on men, women and children in this country meant a huge amount to me, to Liam and to all our listeners and Telegraph readers who were so happy that someone in Parliament was sticking up for us for Planet Normal. So we wish you well in your future travels. I'm not politically dead yet, Alison. I think there's two <laughs> years plus to go before the next general election. That wasn't an elegy, it was a eulogy. Anyway, you're very modest and it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you. Charles Walker, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Take care. I'm so glad, Alison, that we finally had Sir Charles Walker as our Planet Normal stowaway. I do think he is the antidote to the view that all politicians are in it for themselves. He's absolutely not in it for themselves. And I share your view that his contributions to the parliamentary debate have been really incredible and straight from the heart. And you know what? These are cynical times, but I do believe there are many people on the Labour side and all parties and indeed commentators from all papers who have some degree of admiration for the member for Broxbourne. I think so, Liam. I think he's so honest, isn't he? I think he feels he has got a shorter fuse because he's been so upset by all these emails he's been getting and he wants to bow out, I think, before it coarsens him more. And I do think public life will be poorer when he goes. He said many very funny things to me. He said, I've got a lot to be modest about when I said you're too (laughs) modest. But he also said Charles has never been a minister, amazingly, in that long and distinguished career. And he said he could never be a minister because he only thinks for a second between hearing a question and answering it. That's a second is all he allows. And he said ministers have to least 1.5 or two seconds. (laughs) But that's the joy of him. And I think all that honesty as well about maybe people have to be aware that there are costs to lockdown. This is the tab and it's not very nice, is it? But there was a lot of support for lockdown and I don't think people realise. By the way, I particularly valued his furious attack on Sage. Now on to our fantastic listener emails, which as the co-pilot will be quick to tell you, I steal from every available opportunity. But as T.S. Eliot said, immature poets borrow, mature poets steal. Not that old chestnut again. You will that out every few weeks. <laughs> God. 
doesn't make it any better, you know, that you just nick people's emails and stick them in your column. God. One of the world's greatest poets approves of nicking things from people. I'm sticking to me guns. Anyway, this is from Nigel. Nigel says, Visiting was allowed at Norwich Prison over the Christmas period. It was not allowed at Norfolk and Norwich Hospital, and it still isn't. One of my neighbours escaped from there after six weeks. The only time his (laughs) wife heard from a doctor was when they wanted to put him on the do not resuscitate list. How cruel is that? And Annette from the same part of the country says, I am questioning the sense in the current rules at my local hospital. This is also the Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital, where my 96-year-old father Owen is now after suffering a stroke on the 3rd of February. I'm not allowed to visit him until he has either A, been an inpatient for 10 days and is therefore classified as a long-term inpatient, or B, is transferred to an end-of-life pathway. My father is 96. Surely by anyone's standards, he is end-of-life. This rule means that my dad, who's partially sighted and quite deaf, is deprived of my touch. I could put in his hearing aids and he would benefit from hearing my voice. There are things that would, I feel sure, help him at a time when he must be feeling scared and alone. Digital voice communication methods don't really work for him because of his sight and hearing disabilities. And the stroke means his speech, until now so clear and bright due to his previously sharp mind being 100% dementia-free, is affected. The rule just seems ridiculous. I'm left waiting for a nurse or doctor to call me. I've tried ringing the ward and holding on for ages, but the phone is not answered. To be fair, I would far rather staff a busy caring for our loved ones, and I know they're working very hard, so I'm not criticising, but it all just adds to my distress. I am triple jabbed, and so is my father. I'd happily take a lateral flow test on the ward if that meant I could see him now rather than wait in this limbo. I doubt I'm alone in feeling like this. I'm not sure why I'm writing to you. I suppose it makes me feel better to be doing something. My experience is not vastly different from so many others. I just thought it might be useful if you at Planet Normal were reminded what is still going on out there and how it continues to affect some of the most vulnerable in our society. Just quickly, Liam, I did get back to Annette and I put Annette in touch with George. And George has given Annette some brilliant advice about who she should get on to, Patients Association, immediately make a complaint. I think we'll put the details of that maybe in the show notes in case other listeners are in the same sort of situation. But from Planet Normal, we send all our best wishes to Annette and to her father, Owen, and we hope I'll bring you an update next week. We certainly do. George, of course, is our NHS England insider who remains anonymous who helps guide us through the data that is and isn't published that's produced in our name. Now, this is from Anne. Hi, co-pilots. Love your podcasts. And what a delight it was to be able to tell Liam in person in Blackpool last week. I was up in Blackpool. Oh, she met you. Presenting my GB News show. Ah. As for levelling up, says Anne, nothing will work until there's an attitudinal change towards the North amongst the majority of the Oxbridge Whitehall mandarins. We're still perceived as Clogston, shawl-wearing, whip-it-racing pie-eaters. <laughs> and the same attitude goes for too many in power. Hey, up, Anne, that'll be in an Alison Pearson column soon as a proud <laughs> Lancashire lass. I've too often been on the receiving end of patronising comments, arrogant disdain, or even worse, just ignored, even when presenting the most valid of arguments. Admittedly, that was when I was working overseas, where the English class system is often at its worst amongst expats. 
Happily, my Aussie, Canadian and Kiwi colleagues were fully accepting of my professional skills and value. It's a very sad reflection of our country and Michael Gove will have his work cut out if he wants to make any impact with his levelling up policies. Thanks again for your brilliant podcast. Well, thank you, Anne, for a fabulous email. And Catherine adds, I'm from Australia. I can't believe how far behind this country's health service is. I could get any scan or x-ray within a week if it was urgent on the same day. The same applies to blood tests. Every few miles in Australia, there are clinics. Citizens of the UK are paying exorbitant prices for a third world health service. This is one from Annabelle, who runs a business in the food industry. My mother-in-law's comfortably off, 90-year-old, bloody amazing woman, takes my husband's shirts to iron and she brings round soup. I love her. She recently said she started to worry that she should be turning off her heating as prices will soon be so astronomically high. With less money in their pockets, people will stop going to restaurants and hotels first, those very people in hospitality who were clobbered over this government's mad reaction to the virus. Suppliers of these companies will then start going bust. Hairdressers, nail bars, all the small private businesses that have built up over the last couple of decades. They'll also suffer from having to put their prices up and then losing custom, a massive, vicious inflationary circle. In our industry, prices were put up an average of 11% in September, because of the market we're in, we couldn't put up our prices until December and January. We really struggled in the last quarter, and we won't be the only ones. How much worse is this going to be when energy prices could more than double for businesses? What's the point in the government offering a measly £350 to, quotes help with energy bills with the right hand, only to snatch it away immediately with national insurance hikes with the left? In fact, what's the point of this government at all? They're throwing away everything we've built on, a ridiculous green agenda that no one has been allowed to question, as ever, too many vested interests. The whole cabinet must go, says Annabelle. We need a Tory who believes in and will action low-tax small-state policies. And Carrie shouldn't be allowed to have side deals with mates in high places. Enough, we've all had enough, as ever. How fantastic that those of us on Planet Normal have an outlet to vent and to know that we're not alone. Thank you, co-pilots. Well said, Annabelle. And finally, part of our occasional series, things you can recall that a young person today would find totally incomprehensible. <laughs> Jan, who's from Penarth, my part of the world, recalls slightly chaotic teachers with blue stains on faces, hands and clothes from Banda Reprographic oh, yeah. Inks usually smelling of old bitter tobacco smoke, too pedagogic maybe, multi-sensory theatre events certainly. Now, Jan, I was a student teacher and I too was wrestled with the purple ink of the dreaded banda machine. Rob recalls some phrases. You can get a hundred weight of coke in our pram. <laughs> Collected from the gas works, says Rob. We didn't expect to be warmed by Russians unless they bombed us. Crikey. Rob also recalls, Warm the setup for the news. Valve radios took about five minutes for sound to come through. And finally, from Jonathan, next year, petrol would be a pound a gallon. Oh, for the good old days, Halligan. You know, <laughs> one of my earliest memories is my mum coming home. She's working as a secretary and saying down to her, to her, her mate down the phone, they should pay me a pound an hour. I'm worth a pound an hour. If she's worth a pound an hour, I'm worth a pound an hour. <laughs> Explains a lot about my personality, yeah? Isn't it interesting? We should explore this more. So both our mums 
were very able, bright grammar school girls and they both went to tech to do shorthand typing and they became secretaries, I bet, to men who often were not as good as them. That's just to put that out for you there, Halligan. And on that bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week. It's Alison. I'm going to give it to Annette, who is desperately trying to break into the Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital to see her lovely 96-year-old dad, Owen. Annette, if you send us your address and details, then we'll get a Planet Normal mug in the post to you. And if you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps others to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow. Also, if you'd like to enjoy my wonderful Telegraph columns and the rather obscure scrawlings, economic scrawlings of co-pilot Halligan, and you're not already Telegraph subscribers, listeners can get a one-month subscription for free by going to telegraph.co.uk forward slash normal. Keep those emails coming in. We love to read them. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth, comes back into view thanks as ever to our producers Isabel Bouchard Louisa Wells Elliot Lampitt and our new editor it's Zoe Hitch stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other until next week it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him 